All right. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started. Um, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel this morning. I told you guys we started, we finished Esther last week. And if you remember the chronology, um, Esther actually comes after the book of Daniel in chronology um, because it's during, Esther happens during the reign of Medo-Persia. Now Daniel will pick up, um, as you know, during a portion of the reign of Medo-Persia because you have him, um, Cyrus coming along during Daniel's lifetime and, and King Darius, who's, who's a Medo-Persian king, coming along in Daniel's lifetime. But um, Esther would be technically after Daniel. Um, we put her before just because we wanted to start doing some history um, in the exilic period of Israel, but Daniel becomes sort of a key book. So that's where we're going to start looking this morning. So let me pray. Father, we are thankful for this morning, the chance to get into um, your word together, um, to consider um, what you've said by your spirit through the prophet Daniel. Um, Father, we pray that, that as we um, consider the word that's been revealed to him, um, the important place that it plays in um, our understanding of the Bible, we pray that you would um, help us to understand um, what you're saying to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, all right, so we're, like I said, we're starting the book of Daniel this morning. I want to um, sort of place Daniel in history a little bit and kind of get you understanding where this book lands and then move into the text itself. Um, to start that, I want to remind you, Daniel occurs during the exile of Israel from the land by Nebuchadnezzar, um, and it continues through the reign of King Darius, king of Medo-Persia. So look at Daniel chapter 1 and verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Um, so you guys hear what's happening um, at this point. Nebuchadnezzar has come in and conquered Israel and is beginning to take things back to Babylon. So um, we're, we remember Jeremiah and Isaiah had both prophesied that if Israel did not repent well and that it had become too late, even, even though she had repented. You guys remember which king she had repented under? And it was like, it's too late. What's that? You ought to know. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The king after which I suppose you're named, ultimately. Um, so King Josiah. He had repented, but at that time, when Josiah repents, though it looks like a kind of glorious reformation or revival that's happened in Israel, God is still saying, it's, you, the sin has gone on too long, my patience is worn thin, and um, you're going into exile. Um, so you're going to go into exile under Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. So the Babylonian kingdom comes in and sweeps through the area. If you remember, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been carried off by the Assyrians 100 years earlier. And now ba uh, the Babylonian king comes in and carries off the southern kingdom of Judah. Um, 
This is completed circa 587, 586 BC um, when they're finally carried off. So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't start, I mean, he starts besieging Israel prior to that. But by the time he finally conquers Israel, Jerusalem, and carries off um, the things of the temple, right? The items of the temple and destroys the temple and destroys the city wall and carries off the things of, um, of the people like Daniel and his three friends. They're, th- they're part of what gets carried off. You guys remember that? Okay. By the time that's occurring, um, it's about 587, 586 BC. That's when this happens. Um, and then continue to about five. So notice the range at the end. I put 538 522 BC. Um, there are some reasons for that. And, and just so you know, Cyrus, um, king of Persia in 538 BC, um, says Israel can return to the land. Okay? And rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. So the... The exile ends in 538 BC. Now, does anybody, before I get into the question of why I put 522 up there um, with regard to Darius, I, I want to ask a question. Does anybody, anybody know why those dates uh, present a question when you're studying the book of Daniel? Yeah, because they're not 70 years. So, 586, 587, doesn't matter which year you pick, to 538, it's how many years? 50. 50 years. Just over 50 years by the time Israel finally gets up and returns. Okay? But um, we're told in Jeremiah, you're going to be in, in um, exile for 70 years. Where that, that number 70 also comes up in the book of Daniel, doesn't it? Um, but it's not 70 years. And so um, some people start to freak out about that. Um, was the prophecy false? Um, yes, sir. Yeah, but even if you go to the beginning of the siege in, in the very earliest date... Yeah, but they're not part of the 70 years that's decreed. So, because Jeremiah is targeting it toward Judah, southern, the, southern, the southern kingdom. So, even if you go to the very earliest date of Nebuchadnezzar, which is 605 BC, um, potentially he starts coming in. If you do the math on that, you're still at best in 60-something years, right? You're not exactly 70. Um, Guys try to fudge the date and look for evidence to try to push it to 70 years. And I think it's a, it's a kind of adventure in missing the point, which is what I want to help you understand as we move further into Daniel. Um, I actually want you to grasp the fact that by 70 years, we don't mean 70 calendar years. Um, and I'll, I'll try to explain why. Um, and I think you're going to see that the text of Scripture... Um, means to tell you we don't mean 70 calendar years. So we'll, we'll deal with that. Um, in other words, I, what I'm saying is I'm not just going to make that up because it is convenient to fix the problem. 
Um, just like I'm not going to try to slide around Babylonian, Medo-Persian, and Israeli history to try to solve a different problem, um, I'm going to tell you that I think actually the text tells us why we, should, we shouldn't be thinking 70 calendar years. You, you guys follow me on that? So we'll, we'll look at that a bit later. Um, the reason I put up, put up um, 522 BC is because we think that that's approximately when King Darius comes into power. Cyrus sends them out in 538, King Darius, and, uh, but we're not really sure. Okay, so when I say we're not really sure, that it, theories about Darius and Cyrus range. So um, without getting into all the technicalities of history, there's the Babylonian Empire. It falls, and it falls to the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, or what we call the kingdom of Medo-Persia. You've heard of Medo-Persia. Medo-Persia is actually two um, kingdoms, if you will, coming together under one umbrella. Um, so you have the Medes and the Persians. You can hear their name, Medo-Persia, right? Um, coming together under one. Scholars will speculate all the way from, all the way in this range. Um, Cyrus is the, is the Persian name of the king, and Darius is the Median name of the king. Same king, two different names. Scholars will go from there all the way to no. Cyrus and Darius are necessarily different men, which is actually what I think. I used to think they were the same man under different names. Now, because of various things said in the prophets, I think they're probably different men. Um, but Darius is a, is a later king, um, and he, he happens to be Median. But what year then would Darius have been king? Um, here's the difficulty we have is the history, our hist piecing together of the history of that area is not as clear as we'd like it to be. You guys understand why that is, right? How do we piece together history from five, the 520s and 530s BC? You have archaeological digs. You try to find remnants of, of texts in the Old Testament or other religious books that refer to that era, and you try to piece it all together. Um, yeah, uh, of what happened 2,500 years ago. That isn't the easiest thing in the world to do. So what's remarkable to me is the kind of um, cocksure nature of some scholars as they comment on these periods and they say, this is why the Bible's wrong, because we know, why? Because why? you found a shard of some pottery somewhere and that like in some desert, and so now that's just resolved the whole thing. Um, this, is, this is the kind of thing where you realize we, we need to have a... Um, a much lower assessment of our conclusions about these eras than we tend to have um, because we don't tend to know as much as we claim to know. You guys understand that? Most of what we have historically is documents that are hundreds of years after the fact. In fact, uh, most historians of that era have to look at the Bible because the most, um, the most, or how was it, the nearest writings to the period it occurred, when you say, when I talk about extant manuscripts or documents, documents that occurred in that period, the nearest writings where you say that writing is, that scroll actually existed in the same era, the nearest ex extant writings to the events that occurred are actually Old Testament scrolls. And in the first century, New Testament scrolls. You guys follow me on that? 
Uh, and that would be a kind of historical evidence to find out what's happening in an era. So, so it gets a little sticky. So you might be like, where, where does Darius belong? Um, at least 522 BC. Now, why do I say that? Darius is involved. Look at Daniel chapter 6 br briefly. Daniel 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdoms, the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one to whom these satraps would get, should give account so the king should suffer no loss. It pleased Darius. So here's King Darius, king of the Medes and Persians. Um, this is the, there, there's some historical difficulty here. Um, it's possible, entirely possible, maybe even likely, that after Cyrus starts sending the Jews back to Israel, um, Daniel um, is remaining behind as a leader in um, Medo-Persia, right? Well, as far as we know, when we get to Ezra and Nehemiah, we don't see Daniel going to the land. You guys remember that. You, you don't see Daniel going there. So, um, so Daniel seems to have stayed behind. So we're going we're gonna to look more at this stuff as we move along because we're going to spend a little more time in Daniel, like Esther we did in a week, um, Song of Songs we did in a week, uh, you know, Lamentations we did in a week, but Daniel's going to take a bit more time. Uh, and there's, there's some reasons for that, so we'll look at some more of these questions. Uh, but I think the first question we have to get back to, because we're going to remember the whole of our story, is why was Israel exiled? And why would she be restored? Okay, guys, this brings us all the way back to the, old to, the, to the oldest part of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the law, okay? Um, because remember in the story, we're asking the question, now, I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the bigger arc of the, the biggest arc of the story, God's glory and saving his people in all nations. I'm talking about the arc of the story of Israel here. God comes to Abraham and, and, and he says what? I'm gonna give you three things. What are they? Thank you. You've been here for four years, D. You know the three answers. <laughs> I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you seed. Your seed will bless, you know, be like multiply like the sand of the seashore. You guys remember these kinds of things like the stars of the sky. Um, I'm going to give you this particular promised land in, in Palestine. And I'm going to, I'm going to bless all the nations through you, through your seed. Okay, you guys remember those things? They're all in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22. Um, you can go through and see those. So Genesis 12, you get the original promises. Genesis 15, you get the cutting of that covenant with the smoking fire pot. Genesis 17, you get the sign of the covenant with circumcision. And Genesis 22, um, if you will, you get um, Abraham's act of covenantal obedience with some extension that comes from that uh, or faithfulness. Um, so we see there some more promises. But Abraham's family then develops first into, if you remember, Abraham has who? What are his two sons' names? Isaac and Ishmael. Isaac's the chosen son. Then Isaac has how many sons? Two, and their names are? Jacob and Esau. Jacob being the chosen son. Esau becoming Edom, um, which is that nation that we'll often run into um, that opposes Israel. So Jacob and Esau. Jacob has how, how well, 
If you, if you, once you get to his, you know, a couple, one of his sons being split between a couple grandkids. How many sons? Twelve, right? So twelve that become the twelve tribes. Um, so we have 12 tribes. Those become the 12 tribes of Israel. At the end of the book of Genesis, where is the family? Egypt. There's 70 of them. So there's 12 sons of Jacob and their grandchildren. There's 70 of them. That number 70, by the way, is not accidental. Anybody know how many um, nations there were at Babel when the Tower of Babel falls? 70. Right, the fall of the Tower of Babel. If you look at Genesis 10, there's 70 nations. Um, at the end of Israel, at the end of Genesis, um, the family of Abraham has 70 in it. Um, they're a large family. I said it's like if it's it's like the size of the Hepner family in maybe 15, 20 years. Right, assuming all the kids marry and have grandkids. Um, they're going to have like 70. <laughs> and Christmas is going to be outrageously expensive for Joel. He's going to have to run a hotel somewhere for them to have Christmas. So the, uh, <laughs> but if you start thinking about the, the question of that, right, um, that's, it's a large family and they're in Egypt. They've, been, they've not been carried off in Egypt. They've gone into Egypt um, because Joseph has rescued them from famine. You guys remember that, okay? Uh, so they're in Egypt. Promises are made about the sons which son will, from which son will the messianic king come? Judah. From Judah. Right, so they're in Egypt. God had told them they would go into Egypt in Genesis 15. You guys remember that? And that they would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. When Exodus opens, they're in Egypt, but now we're told they've been, God multiplied them. He made them fruitful and multiplied them, just like he promised in Genesis 17, which takes you all the way back to which chapter of the Bible? Genesis 1, 28, be fruitful and multiply. But God says, now I will multiply you and make you fruitful. And so they, they have been, we're told that in Exodus 1, they've been multiplied, made fruitful, and, and now they have a massive number of people and Pharaoh is concerned about them and he oppresses them, enslaves them, and mistreats them. You guys remember this? And God sends Moses um, to lead them out of captivity in Egypt. After 400 plus years, as God promised in Genesis 15, they're taken out of captivity. Now, why was Israel kept in captivity in Egypt for 400 years? You remember what we were told in Genesis 15? What was the reason? The, the, the sin of the Amorites was not yet complete. So now, in other words, the pagan nations in the land of Canaan that Israel is supposed to possess that they, their sin was not yet complete. The Lord was apparently in some way still being patient with them for the purpose of repentance. And they weren't repenting, right? And if you want to know about how wicked they were, just read the book of Leviticus because as Israel is about to head into the, pro, into the promised land, they're being told all kinds of things not to do that their pagan neighbors do, right? And if you read the book of Leviticus, you realize how disgusting those people were. Let's face it, when you're throwing your baby and babies into fire and you're having relations with your animals and such, you're, you've pretty much gone all the way down that road. I mean, you're, you're, when you read Leviticus and you realize what the pagan nations are doing, you think, hey, like um, San Francisco has not even gotten close yet. 
on their way, but a long way until they're as bad as the nations Israel's coming to show up. You guys follow me on that? Um, so we're, we're talking about a pretty horrific kind of people. God had been being patient with, it seems, to repentance, but now God's brought them out of Egypt, and he's taking them, and he makes a covenant with them, the Mosaic Covenant. So now there are people under the Abrahamic Covenant, in the Abrahamic Covenant. God makes a covenant with them, the Mosaic Covenant, where he says, hey, listen, you're now uh, a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, and he gives them what you might call their national constitution, the Mosaic Covenant. Here's your constitution. Here's how you're going to live in the land. Here's the laws you're going to abide by. Here's how you're going to worship, etc. You guys remember that? Okay. Now, um, when they, and, and, keep, and you're going to keep this. They swear to keep it. And, but God says, if you violate this, what am I going to do? I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to exile you from the land. If you keep it, I'm going to bless you in the land. You guys understand that? Okay. They violate it while Moses is still getting that law. <laughs> you guys remember, and God shows them mercy um, in, in a number of ways. But, but there they are. Um, they go through the wilderness. They get, to the, <clears throat> they get to the promised land. Just before they go into the promised land, Moses warns them again in Deuteronomy. Deuteros second namas law. So the second telling of the law. What's Moses doing? He's telling the second generation. Like, me and your parents, we really fouled this up, right? Don't do what we did. Here's what God commands you. We don't get to go in the promised land. Joshua and Caleb are going to lead you into the promised land. Don't repeat our errors. You guys remember that? But then he says this, which is interesting. You're going to. You're going to repeat our errors. Um... He talks about the nature of a coming prophet greater than Moses. He talks about a coming king and what the king ought to look like. Um, and he promises them, you will violate this. Now in Deuteronomy 28, he lays out the blessings and cursings for disobedience. Um, so look there, Deuteronomy 28. Look there, I'll give you a couple of examples because it's going to tie us to what, where we've arrived in Daniel. So Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Okay, now, there's a whole list of them. I want to get to the end of the list. Go down to verse 64. 64. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if it only were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promised that you should never make again. 
And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. Okay. Um, you can see how horrific this scene is, right? You're going to be carried off into the nations because you disobeyed me, and you're going to be cursed. When, when you're saying, you know, when, when you're saying at night, I wish it was morning, and at morning, I wish it was night, it's, ba it's a bad day. I mean, you could imagine, just, just right now, because we're in a situation, you could imagine um, how the families hiding in their basements in Ukraine feel right now. Right? I'm sure they're feeling in the morning, I wish it were night, maybe the onslaught will stop, and at night, um, they're thinking, I wish it were morning, so this would stop. You guys understand what I mean by that? Um, that's got to be terrifying and horrible, right, to walk through. Um, just as a side note about Ukraine, if you didn't know that, Ukraine is the number one mission Christian missionary sending nation in um, Eastern Europe and, and potentially in all of Europe. Um, the church is actually quite strong there, Protestant church, and sending lots of missionaries um, and a lot of the missionaries who were over there training that church, those churches are staying. They didn't leave. So they're there continuing to do their work. Um, so uh, just as a note of people to pray for, um, it's a rough time for them. Rough time. Well, that's what he's saying is coming for Israel. This is what it's going to be like for you. Right? Um, <clears throat> so... They go into the land and um, they are, they refuse to eliminate all the pagan peoples and they refuse to do another thing. They refuse not to marry their women um, who then carry them off. Now, I want to pick up on this, this theme. Um, why do you think God says don't marry their women? I just want to hit on this really quickly. Why, why shouldn't they marry pagan women? What's that going to cause for them? Divided loyalties, which is probably going to lead to their downfall and their own idolatry. This is baked into the Bible story all the way back to Genesis 3, isn't it? Satan knows, seems to know, take down the wife, I get the husband too. Right? He wants to take down Adam. Adam's the federal head of all humanity in whom humanity will fall, not Eve, yet Satan goes and isolates, seems, tries to isolate Eve. Now, he, he's talking to both of them because the, the, the word you, I'll point this out on Sunday, the word you, when he says you, 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 know, you should take the fruit, you won't die, is in the plural in every case. And then it says Adam was with her. But he's targeting her um, and seems to know that in her fall, Adam's going to come down too. Um, and you, so you see throughout the story of the Bible, if you marry an un, ungodly woman, it's not good for you, right? It's probably going to take you down a bad path. Um, you're going to see that come up in Genesis 6 when the sons of Seth um, marry the daughters of Cain. And what's going to happen? Wickedness is going to spread in all the earth and God's going to destroy the earth. Because the godly line of Seth is now marrying with the ungodly line of Cain, and that's bad. You guys follow me on that? So then wickedness prevails. And then you're going to hear God warn Israelites, don't marry the women in the land. Go in there and slaughter everybody in the land. That place is wicked, and you're going to end up intermarrying with them. You're going to end up committing idolatry with them, and it's going to be bad. Okay? Israel doesn't listen. And so they do. And we, as we know, 
through Joshua. Though they're doing fairly well in Joshua, they don't put everybody to, to death in the pagan nations. They don't conquer all the land. They let them remain. They start intermarrying with them. We know when we come into Judges um, that it gets real ugly in Judges as we cycle through. And then we come into 1 Samuel. They start wanting a king. Then they go after a pagan type of king. In other words, a king that like the pagan nations want in Saul. Um, that goes poor from the wrong tribe, the tribe of Benjamin, not the tribe of Judah. That goes poorly. Um, he's wicked. He doesn't put to death um, Agag like he's supposed to. And then we see Agag come along again in Esther, as you guys saw last week, when Mordecai from the Benjamin tribe, from the house of Kish or Saul, um, uh, is, is now faced with Haman from the Agagites, um, who takes you all the way back to the Amalekites and to Esau's line, interestingly enough. And now you get to see Saul's line redeemed in finally dealing with Agag, which Saul would not do in 1 Samuel 15, which was the end of kind of his reign. You guys remember that, all of that? Okay, so uh, you see the story carried through. God then gives them King David and says to King David, I'm gonna, put, uh, I'm gonna make a covenant with your son and he's gonna rule forever. Um, and then we start looking to the various kings, but the kings cycle between godly and ungodly kings until finally Israel's so far gone that this promise, um, if you will, of cursing is coming upon them, of exile. Now, God did not just promise to exile them. He actually, Moses will go on in Deuteronomy 29 and tell them that all these blessings and cursings I talked about, the, the, the cursings are coming upon you because you're actually gonna violate this. And now you guys remember, where do the prophets fall? I now, by the prophets, I don't mean the former prophets because remember, one of the way to name prophets, former prophets would be what we call the historical books. But I mean the latter prophets, i.e. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, um, the 12, etc., where the prophets come in like prosecuting attorneys and they say, Israel, here's the law God gave you. Here's the history of what you did. God's gonna bring the curses upon us. You guys follow me on that? So the prophets come in and do. But the prophets also come in and say, but God's gonna give us a new covenant. He's going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the old covenant, the covenant with Moses that we broke. You guys understand what's happening there? And, and what's that new covenant going to look like? Well, he's going, to, he's going to write the law on your hearts. You guys remember that? Um, in other words, rather than it just being on tablets of stone, it's going to be written on your hearts. You're going to want to keep it. He's going to forgive you your sins, right, etc. You guys remember all that? New Covenant, okay, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, etc. Now, look at Deuteronomy 30. And, and when all these things come upon you, verse 1, when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, he's telling them, it's coming for you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Okay, let's just stop for a minute. We're in Deuteronomy. This is Moses talking. Before the people have ever gotten to the land. And what's Moses telling them he knows is coming for them? They will be exiled. They're going to be exiled and driven among all the nations. In Daniel, we're reading of the consummation of what he says right here. As Nebuchadnezzar carries them off. Do you guys follow me on that? 
Okay? Now, <clears throat> look what he says. And return to the Lord your God, right? Now notice this, verse 2. When God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today. Now notice this language. With all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. Um, so he's going to bring you back in the land, and he's going to restore Israel. And he's going to make you more prosperous than your fathers. This also begins in Daniel. Begins there. Is it consummated there? In other words, what I mean by it begins is King Cyrus, during Daniel's lifetime, says, you can go back to the land, you can rebuild the temple, you can rebuild the wall, etc. Does it get consummated there? No. Is Israel finally restored to her former glory at that point? No. In fact, she's oppressed by four kingdoms, which Daniel's going to tell us about. Right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome. And then will come the kingdom of God. So it hasn't happened yet. That's why when you get to the book of Acts and Acts 2 opens up and you're told there are people from all of these various nations who've gathered to Pentecost, Jews from all these various nations have gathered for Pentecost, then the Spirit pours out and they all hear the gospel in their own languages. And you're saying, what's happening? Well, actually, the consummation of this promise is happening. You guys following me on that? Um, begins in Daniel, reaches sort of its consummation in Acts, interestingly enough. All right, so now, I mean, not the full consummation. That, that full consummation of Babel, what happened at Babel, will be reached in its fullest sense in the new heavens and new earth. But, all right, look what he goes on to say. Um, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is, this is in substance, the exact same promise in the new covenant, right? Your heart will be circumcised, be made new. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in the book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. All right, so... What, what I'm trying to drive you to as we look at the book of Daniel is that God has told them the exile's coming for their wickedness, and God has told them in exile, you're going to come to repentance, and when you do, I'm going to save you and bring you back and bless you. You guys, you guys follow me on that? And restore Israel. Daniel announces that in a historical way. So this is what I want you to get about Daniel. Daniel's going to announce that in a historical way in as much as you're going to see Israel begin to return to the land. But what you're not going to see in Daniel is the restoration of Israel. You're not going to see it. 
you're still waiting for the cutting of that new covenant in which it finally occurs, right? Where the people of Israel repent and turn back and walk with the Lord. And that's why, you know, you hear that kind of emphasis. Um, Daniel's going to tell you, actually, Daniel's going to tell you um, when the day of Israel's restoration is going to happen. You might say, what do you mean going to tell you? Doesn't Israel's restoration begin in Daniel? In one sense, she begins to return to the land, rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall. You guys follow me on that? The exile ends. But Daniel tells you, actually, that's not the beginning of the kingdom of God. It's not going to begin here. The kingdom of God is coming later. So he tells you when it's coming. Okay. So when we look at this book, we're not just looking at... Um, their return from exile per Deuteronomy 30, but we're looking at a much larger picture of the restoration of Israel in the fuller sense. And Daniel's the one who tells us we should see it that way. What I mean by that is, it's not me just going back in the Old Testament and reading it the way that it seems convenient for the Christian story. What I mean is, is that Daniel actually says, hey, um, we're gonna be under the Babylonians, we're under the Babylonians, we're going to be under the Medes and the Persians. Then we're going to be under Greece. Then we're going to be under Rome. And then the kingdom of God will come. Then the restoration of Israel comes. You guys follow me on that? That's in the book of Daniel. So it becomes a fairly important book for understanding both where Israel's at in history during the exile and her return to the land and telling us about the eschaton. The, the, the last days, okay? Um, so, as we, so we're going to spend a little more time in it because we need to look at both things. Now, it's really appropriate we're in the book of Daniel at this point in time, not because um, it's time for us to assess that Russia is the bear being referred to in Daniel 7 or something like that. That's not why, why it's appropriate. <laughs> but, but, but you watch, it's going to start. If it hasn't started already... People are going to start saying it. Yes, sir? Yes, yes, except, except Putin rides around with a, on a horse with his shirt off, and Justin Trudeau makes heart things like this in front of purple backgrounds while he crushes his people. Um, so tyranny can come with a smile, we've learned, or a scowl. It doesn't seem to matter too much. All right. <laughs> okay, we're getting far afield. Daniel, so well, the reason I say it's appropriate that we're in the book of Daniel right now with so much uncertainty in the world post-COVID and now uh, Russia's attack of Ukraine and China's, you know, announcement yesterday that this was all because of American aggression um, and flying their fighter jets over Taiwan um, yesterday of all days to fly their fighter jets over Taiwan and start uh, making noise. Uh, we recognize, hey, things are a little tentative, right? And that's a little bit nerve-wracking. Um, nerve-wracking for a variety of reasons, just things like we have serious inflation and we get 500,000 to 700,000 barrels of oil a day from Russia. Just things like um, we make a lot of food here and our fertilizer comes largely from Russia. Um, so, you know, you have some potential inflationary pressures coming above and beyond what we already have. And so it starts to stoke in uncertainty. 
when you think gas prices might go up even higher, food prices might go up even higher, or likely to, um, the world seems unsettled, it's a bit of a mess, we can start to feel a little bit um, rattled. So it's good to be in the book of Daniel right now. Um, Daniel is teaching. The reason I say that is not because I'm going to say, here's how we see the world situation via the various beasts of Daniel. That's not what I'm going to do. Because those beasts actually have already come. The beasts of Daniel. Um, they're actually describing Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The four beasts in Daniel. So we'll look at that. But Daniel's teaching the people of God to trust him and his promises even in the midst of exile under wicked nations, uh, for the kingdom of God will most assuredly come. That's what he's teaching them. Trust the Lord, right? And you're going to see that from beginning to end. He's just basically saying to them, um, the Lord is on his throne. The Lord's on his throne. Um, so, so don't be too rattled. So with that said, I want to give you a kind of chaotic outline for Daniel. And I push on a chaotic outline only because... Um, probably the best way to look at this book. Now, here's what I want to do um, as I even walk through this kind of outline. I want to show you the chiastic structure within uh, the, the, the most basic one within the text and then, then move out to the whole book this way. Um, so before I, you, you guys don't have to write this down. You can ask me for the PowerPoint and I can email it to you. It's really convenient, and then you don't have to write it all down. Um, so let me, let, me, uh, let me walk through a part of Daniel just to give you an idea of what a chaotic structure looks like in Daniel, because it's quite neatly organized. One of the things that you may not know is that Daniel chapter 1, so I'm going to write this here, Daniel 1, and then I'll put it down here, Daniel 8 through 12, are uh, written in Hebrew. So when you go read the text, this is written in Hebrew, and this is written in Hebrew. Interestingly, Daniel 2 um, through 7 are written in Aramaic. It's fascinating. And it's an attempt to get our attention, right? Um, for lack of a better way of describing it to you, you might think of Aramaic sort of like um, street Hebrew. It's, 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 it's closely enough related. It's a different language in, in some regards, but it's closely enough related that we, we might almost call it like a dialect or a common, a common commoner's Hebrew. If you knew Aramaic, you couldn't go read the Hebrew Bible, um, but, but the, lang the languages are going to be very close. You're going to tend to... Um, they're, they're just very close. Um, not as close as like Koine Greek is to classical Greek, um, but it's hard to say whether it's close, but they're, they're related. Maybe, maybe English to pigeon or something like that. I, I, you know, it's hard for me to give an exact analogy, but this is an Aramaic. Daniel 1's in Hebrew, Daniel 8's in Hebrew. Why? What's happening there? Okay, so let's, let's talk about the chiastic structure in Daniel 2 through um, 7. By the way, I mean, pretty much anybody who reads is going to argue for this. I'm not, like, this isn't me going out on a limb making stuff up, okay? Um, it just seems to be fairly apparent. So let's, let's talk about it. Um, a, 
if you guys have not, if you guys have seen a chiastic structure before, A, um, Daniel 2. Now, what happens in Daniel 2? Anybody remember? Okay, so Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, and Daniel interprets it. Now, his dream is of what? Okay, a huge statue of four parts. Yeah, particularly in the feet, right? Okay, so you have these, and the, the, those four parts of the statue represent what? In order, four kingdoms. Four human kingdoms, right? And then all of a sudden there's this great rock or mountain that's carved out and comes and crushes the statue. Do you guys remember that? And he says that's the kingdom of God, Daniel 2, okay? So in Daniel 2, you have a dream interpreted. I'm just going to put it here. Four kingdoms, whoops. Um, four kingdoms uh, followed by, I'm just going to put kings, followed by um, the kingdom of God. That's just theos, just for God. Um, all right. Okay, so followed by the kingdom of God. You guys, you guys remember that? All right, now, um, Daniel 3. What's that about? Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue, interestingly, all of gold, not just a golden head, but all of gold of himself, and says, bow down and worship. You guys remember this? And when Nebuchadnezzar makes a statue, says, bow down and worship, we read about something, somebody who won't. Who won't? What's that? Daniel's three friends, right? Um, when you were growing up as a kid, you were told they were called... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they are, those are their pagan God-worshipping names. Also in the text, they're called Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those are their Yahweh-worshipping names. Um, for some reason, the church today loves to say the pagan-worshipping names. I don't know why, but we do. So the three friends are thrown where? Fiery furnace. Okay, so they're thrown into a fiery furnace and... Um, and what happens? Because they won't keep the king's edict, right? They will not keep the keep, keep they will not obey the king's edict to worship. Thrown in the fire furnace, and what happens to them? They're consumed and they die. Nope. What occurs? They don't smell like smoke. But but there's something else that happens in that scene. There's some kind of angelic figure, some some hum, some figures taking human form and walking among them. Okay. Um, so, so there's some, some figure that's taking human form and walking among them, and, they, and so he's, like, they see four figures. You guys remember that? Now, is that a, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ? I don't know. Is that an appearance of an angel? At least. At least. Um, Augustine argues that, that Christ it can't be an appearance of a pre-incarnate Christ. Um, that there are no appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ in the Old Testament. Um, his reasoning for that is that would then undermine the mission of the Son, the mission of the Son coming incarnate. Um, and so he says it's an angel um, operating on behalf of God. So anyway, guys have fought about this for centuries. It really doesn't 
was, the point is God sent someone to deliver them. <laughs> okay, at the end of the day, um, if we know who the figure is who was sent to deliver them or not, someone was sent to deliver them by God. You guys follow me on that? Miraculously, okay? So um, we don't have to resolve who it is for us to feel like we can walk forward in the faith. All right, um, C, Daniel 4, who, what, what happens? What's that? The king goes mad. Okay, you guys remember Daniel 4? Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, right? Um, and, and what happens to him? Okay, so he, 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 he loses it, so he's judged. Nebuchadnezzar's judged, and then what occurs? Restored, right? And good, Joel. He repents. You guys remember that? Okay. He's restored. He repents. King Nebuchadnezzar. Wicked as all get out. God humbles him. God restores him and brings him to repentance. Okay. It doesn't just destroy him. Daniel. Though, so now I'm going to go to the next part of the chiastic structure. Look. C prime. Or one. Okay. Daniel five. What happens here? Okay, it's the overthrow of Babylon under what king? Huh? What'd you say, Dan? Good, okay. Belshazzar, Belshazzar, however you want to say his name. He's overthrown. Do you guys remember what happens? He's there having a party. He's filled with pride. Um, he's, he's, he's down line of Nebuchadnezzar. What's that? They take the cups from the temple... And they start drinking out of them. It's a big mess. And then there's the, you guys remember the miraculous scene there? What happens? Handwriting on the wall. Many, many tekel parson. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. That's not what you want to hear from the Lord. <laughs> okay, so, um, so this king, I'm just going to call him King B for saving myself time writing, okay, or Bell. King Belshazzar, what happens to him? Judged. No restoration, no repentance. You've been found wanting. Dead. End of his kingdom. Okay? Now, just as a side note, are you seeing a distinction between how God dealt with Nebuchadnezzar and how God dealt with Belshazzar? Right off the top. Okay, so we'll come back to that in a minute. Now, B prime. You guys see how it's matching up? Okay, B prime. Daniel 6. What happens there? Okay, King Darius now makes a decree. King Nebuchadnezzar said, you'll, makes a decree, you'll bow before me, you're going to the fiery furnace. You guys remember that? They don't. There's a fourth figure there. They're saved. Out they come, okay? Now Daniel 6, King Darius gives a decree. You guys remember the decree? You can only pray to the king. You can't pray to your gods. And then we're told in the text, Daniel goes home, and Daniel doesn't go into the privacy of his home and pray because he doesn't want to disobey the king. It says, it's very emphasis, Daniel opened the windows and made sure that basically everybody saw him praying, 
right? And he gets down, he starts praying to Yahweh. Um, it's very provocative. He prays, and what happens? Darius is like, I really love Daniel. I, this is true. I don't, I don't want to throw him in the lion's den. But here's the thing with the law of the Medes and the Persians. Once a king makes it, the king is bound to it, right? Remember, that's why King Ahasuerus wants to make a decree to make his wife obey him, right? A law of the Medes and Persians, <laughs> which is like totally outrageous. And all the other guys are like, yeah, we need a law because otherwise the women aren't going to obey us. There's that comedy in Esther where you go, you're a weak king. So, all right, so here you are. That's the law of the Medes and the Persians. Can't disobey it. So he's going to go where? Daniel's going to go in the lion's den, right? So now we got lion's den. And what's going to happen while Daniel's there? Okay, a figure is going to show up and save him. And interestingly, he's going to subdue the animals, just as a side note, if you haven't thought about it before. Um, but, but there he is, subduing the animals. And uh, with this angelic figure has shown up in the lion's den. Now, do you notice a match? between the fiery furnace and the lion's den, okay? King makes a decree, we're gonna obey God and not you. Figure shows up to save them from, miraculously from the outcome, okay? Now, um, let's, let's go one step to a, a, last one, A prime, Daniel seven. Okay, see how A and A prime are matching? Daniel seven is what? What's it about? What's that? Okay, now Daniel has a vision of four beasts, which, which, by the way, are also four kingdoms. Right? Four kingdoms followed by, um, again, the kingdom of God most specifically coming in this son of man who comes to the ancient of days. You guys remember that? Okay, now I want you to follow this. Four kingdoms, Daniel 2. Four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God, Daniel 7. So well, fire furnace, this contest between God and the pagan nation as he saves his people who obey him. Lion's den, contest between God and the pagan nation as he saves his people who obey him, Right? Nebuchadnezzar judged, repentance restored. Belshazzar judged, dead. End of the Babylonian kingdom. Are you guys following the pattern? Now, in a chiastic structure, one of the questions is, where's the emphasis? This particular chiastic structure is so beautiful in the way it's laid out and marked out in Aramaic that sometimes you think, man, I mean, there's like emphasis being brought to every part of this chiastic structure, right? All three sections are giving some different kind of major emphasis. Um, it seems to be um, that as far as eschatology is concerned, the emphasis is on the exterior of it, A and A prime, the four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God. As far as the situation of the people of Israel is concerned, the, the emphasis is put right here in the middle. And why do I say that? What do you notice about God with regard to the pagan kings who've carried off the people? Saying to Israel, if, if you repent, hope. If you don't repent, 
That's right. He's saying, is there your repent, hope? There's hope. If you don't, I'm not going to restore you. What else do you notice about the kings? Yeah, I'm completely in control of those pagan kings. They have their sanity as long as I give it to them. They have their breath as long as I give it to them. Right? Um, when you're a people in exile under kings who are treating you brutally, it's good to be reminded of that. In one case, he shows mercy, and in the other case, he shows justice. And God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Right? Um, that's, it's, it's a sort of stunning picture being told to Israel. Like, the Lord is sovereign. The Lord is sovereign. Now, why do I say I know that's part of the central story? Look at Daniel chapter um, 2 briefly. Um, actually, let's... Yep, Daniel chapter 2 and verse 20, in the middle of Nebuchadnezzar's, after Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel's going to, he tells his friends, I'm going to interpret the dream, and then he says this. Daniel answered and said, after he's gotten the revelation of it, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Are you, are you guys, did you guys just hear that? What, why, why would that message be central to a people in exile? They have no king except these wicked ones who are oppressing them, and the time and season for them is not good. You guys follow? Follow? Okay. Look at Daniel 4 now. And verse 34. At the end of, day, of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, it's interesting because Daniel 4 is told um, in part from the perspective of Nebuchadnezzar, right? I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That's coming from the mouth of the most powerful king on the earth at the time. You, you, guys, you, you guys understand the picture that I'm driving at here. As we look at the book of Daniel, we need to understand what's happening. Now, um, next week, well, not next week. Next week, I'm gone. So the week after that, we'll pick back up. So we're not going to meet next week, okay? But the week after, we'll pick up. When I come back, because um, I'm gone on our staff retreat through next Friday night. So um, Wednesday through Friday, so I won't have it. But the week after, we're going to come back. We're going to focus on Daniel 2 and 7, okay? Um, you can read 3 and 6, fascinating. You can read four and five. It's fascinating. It all plays in. I encourage you to read one, two, three, four, five, right? We're going to focus on two and seven because we want to look at the four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God and that prophecy, okay? Um, and then the week after that, depending on how things go, we'll pick up eight through 12, right? Um, that's where we'll go then is, is with those prophecies. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on Daniel 1, um, 
though I've given you in this chiastic outline um, exile to the realm of the, of the dead, to the unclean realm of the dead, right, in chapter 1, that's where they're exiled, chapter 1. They go to the unclean realm of the dead. Um, the, reason, the reason that scholars point at that that way is you're going to, to people who are murderous, wicked, unclean people, and if you remember, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are then offered the unclean food. You guys remember that? And they're like, we're not going to eat that unclean food. We're going to trust the Lord to provide for us, and he does. I, I want to be really clear. That was not given to us as the basis for a diet called the Daniel plan. I know, it's hard to, that if you just eat vegetables like Daniel, you know, then that's not why it was given to us. It was because they were not going to eat unclean food and dishonor the Lord as faithful Jews. And God, God keeps them um, strong in the faith, right, and preserves their life as they're obedient to him in exile. That's what's going on there. And you remember, these, these four men, and, and they're teenage boys at the time, they're carried off to Babylon to be trained as what? Ministers in the Babylonian system, most specifically as magi. They're in the school of the magi. Astrologers. Pagan school. Right? I mean, you know, your kids, you have a choice in education, at least for now. And, uh, right? The, these kids were carried off into pagan education unwillingly right, against their parents' will. They're carried off into pagan education. They're carried off into pagan eating, if you will. Carried off into all kinds of things that would offend the Jews. You guys follow me on that? When you go to a ma school of the Magi, you're being trained in pagan religion, astrology and the like. They go there, and part of the thing is, even in the midst of that, these men remain faithful and God preserves them. There's a lesson for Israel in that, Daniel chapter one. You guys, right, it's not about a diet plan. It also tells us something about, I mean, I make fun of it because it was a big deal, the Daniel diet. You guys heard about that? It's a big deal, pushed by Rick Warren. He wrote a book called The Daniel Plan, and it's how to eat like Daniel ate for the purpose of weight loss. It's insane. But this is the kind of stuff people do, right? Um, they just abuse the text of Scripture, and everybody follows them in it. Um, so this is, about, this is about godly men, young men, Clayton's age, being or younger, being carried off into exile and saying, even in the pagan schools, we're going to honor the Lord. And even when they put the pagan food in front of us, we'll just fast. We'll eat vegetables. And the, the Lord will preserve our lives. Right? And they're being, it's, a, it's an example to all of Israel how to walk in faithfulness in the midst of, right? It, just eat the king's food and all will be well with you. What's the big deal? Nope, we're going to be faithful to the end. We're not going to we're not going to participate in syncretism with the pagans. By the way, it also answers a bit of a question, Daniel 1, as to how these magi coming out of Babylon um, know about the coming Christ. When you get to Matthew. And these astrologers from the east, by the way, the land of Shinar, where they've been carried to, or Babylon, or what would be current day Iraq, right? They, these guys know about this coming Jewish Messiah and they show up to worship him. You think, where do they learn about that? Hmm. 
How about from Daniel? He was a magi. Um, and they actually, by the way, just so you know, in, ba in Babylon at the time, they actually had retained quite a large um, kind of center for the study of Jewish um, scriptures, even at that time, um, interestingly enough. So, um, it is a question. So, but we're not going to spend time in Daniel 1. That's the general point. Daniel 3 um, and Daniel 6, you have the contest language. Will you obey God or will you obey the king, even at threat of your life? In Daniel 3, the three men say what? You guys, you guys remember what they say? We're going to obey God even if we die. He might not spare us. We're still going to obey him, right? Um, God spares them. Daniel 6, similar contest language. Who's going to prevail, Yahweh or this wicked king? You guys follow me on that? And so you see that. So we won't spend a lot of time in those chapters. Uh, four and five, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy because, you know, um, at God's will is restored, repentant, etc. Five, Belshazzar's wiped out, and in comes Medo-Persia, right? That's, that's what happens in cha chapter five. So we're not going to spend time in those chapters. That's the general overview of where they go. So I said, you know, um, we're, we're going to spend time more um, in, in the prophetic sections of the text because it's a little more difficult and it presses us forward in history all the way to the New Testament age. Um, if I notice the bigger chiastic structure that I put up here, exile to the unclean realm of the dead, chapter one, then chapter seven, two through nine, they put together this kind of chiastic structure where eight and nine also pick up these four kingdoms, just so you know. Um, and because that's true. And then 10 through 12, return from exile and resurrection from the dead. You might say, what, what re resurrection from the dead? If you guys remember in chapter 12, it talks about the coming resurrection from the dead. Um, not just return from exile, but resurrecting from the dead. So you say, well, where do the Christians get this idea of resurrection? Well, one place would be Daniel 12, because it just says there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. <laughs> right? All right. So that would be a place. Okay. So um, that's where we're going. Any questions? Any questions? All right. So um, I would encourage you over the next two weeks, read through Daniel. Um, focus on two and seven for right now and just try to understand, try to look at the similarities between the four kingdoms followed by the kingdom of God and just look at some of that. So we'll, we'll pick that up again in two weeks. All right, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning for the chance to Spend time in your word together um, to consider the book of Daniel. We're thankful for the way in which your word has um, been written to answer um, really um, how you're keeping your promises to your people, um, both in their live, lifetimes and, and even as um, you tell them of what's to come in the future. We pray that we would trust you as Daniel and his three friends did, that we would know that you are king of kings, that you set up rulers and you depose them. Um, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, brothers.